Hey, did you know it's almost time for Wartstock? Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 to 7. We'll have a wide variety of live music with headliner Ugochi. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more at wortfm.org. I'll see you there. You already listened to WORT, either at 89.9 FM or at wortfm.org or via the WART app. But we are also on the major social media platforms. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram at WARTFM or join us on Twitter. Follow the station at WART Radio, our news department at WART News, our talk shows at WART Talk, and music at WARTFM underscore music. Let the algorithms know you want local media in your feed. Give us a follow. You might just want to share what you find. listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Our guest today is Sammy Schock, Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her interdisciplinary research focuses broadly on disability, race, and gender in contemporary American literature and culture. She has published on literature, film, and material culture in a variety of peer-reviewed humanities journals. Dr. Schock's first books, Body Minds Reimagined, Disability, Race, and Gender in Black Women's Speculative Fiction, out by Duke University Press in 2018, argues that black women writers of speculative fiction reimagine the possibilities and limits of body minds, changing the way we read and interpret categories like disability, race, gender, and sexuality within the context of these non-realist texts. Her second book, Black Disability Politics, also published by Duke University Press in 2022, is the focus of our show today. Across six tightly argued chapters and two praxis-focused interludes, Black Disability Politics explores how Black cultural workers have engaged disability as a social and political issue differently than the mainstream, white-dominated disability rights movement. In doing so, Dr. Schock argues that because Black disability politics takes on different qualities, the work has been overlooked or misrecognized within disability studies and Black studies alike. Using archival work on the Black Panther Party and the National Black Women's Health Project, as well as interviews with 11 contemporary Black disabled cultural workers, the book offers a framework for both identifying and enacting Black disability politics for scholars and activists. We cannot understand Black disability politics, Shock writes in the introduction, without engaging histories of anti-Black violence, scientific and medical racism, health disparities, health activism, and environmental racism. 
We also cannot understand black disability politics without exploring how black people have conceptualized not only disability, illness, and disease, but also health, wellness, and healing within our own communities. Dr. Schock also writes for mainstream outlets. She serves as a board member for Freedom Inc. and once twerked with Lizzo. She identifies as a fat, black, queer, cisgender, disabled femme. She is also polyamorous and a pleasure activist. You can follow her on Twitter at Dr. Sammy Shock. Sammy Shock, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's great having you here today. And I'd like to begin uh, with the title of your work because this key term forms the foundation for the entire book. So let's just begin. What is black disability politics and how does this term help us understand both histories of black activism and disability activism in new ways? So black disability politics is the term that I'm using to refer to the way that black activists in particular, but black people collectively have addressed disability as a political and social issue rather than as simply an individual or medical issue that a person has to deal with. So understanding disability in a political context. And I differentiate black disability politics from the mainstream disability rights movement, which has historically been predominantly white because a lot of the work that's been done by black activists isn't necessarily in that realm of rights and accessibility, the independent living movement. Um, of course, there are black folks who are involved, but um, not as much. So a, a lot of the work that comes out of black disability politics, I argue in the book, comes out of activists work to address anti-black violence in some form, some of the examples that you mentioned here, um, that results in disability in black communities that then is being addressed, right? So it's addressing a lot of racial violence, racial neglect, that then results in more disability or particular kinds of disability in black communities and the way that black communities have responded to that um, collectively. So black disability politics is really just about the way that within a particular community, disability emerges and then is dealt with as a political and social issue. You write that, that disability justice is an inherently intersectional approach. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about that. What is intersectionality as you're talking about it in this work? And how is the idea of intersectionality relevant to black disability politics? The way that I talk about intersectionality really thinks about it in terms of the relationship between systems of oppression. A lot of times now we hear folks talk about intersectionality and we think of it as specifically someone with multiple marginalized identities. And that's definitely a way that we can talk about intersectionality, but it's not the only way. So for me, what's really important in using the term intersectionality is to think about systems, race as a system, gender as a system, disability as a system that impacts all of us, whether we are marginalized within that system or privileged within the system, we're impacted by that. And all of these systems overlap, intersect, and support one another, relate to one another, help each other function. And so intersectionality from my approach to it is really thinking about that as a system. So that's really important for Black disability politics because we're not just talking about Black disabled people, although those folks are on the forefront, right? I am a Black disabled person, definitely on the forefront of the work, but there are also non-disabled Black people 
that are doing black disability politics because they're addressing the way, for example, we might think about the water crisis in Flint and the amount of young folks who have learning disabilities as a result of lead in the water. There have been increased cancer cases in the area, right? So we're addressing the fact that a predominantly black town is having this issue around clean water that is resulting in increased disability in a community. That means not only do we want to stop the harm of the poisoned water, but we also want to think about how do we support all the folks who have now been disabled, all these new Black disabled people that exist. So Black disability politics is looking intersectionally to think about how do these systems like race actually intersect with disability and create disability in certain communities. Um, and that's a real foundation of disability justice, which is a relatively new term. So disability justice came about in 2005. So it's a little bit different from disability rights, which really focuses on rights on the state, um, on legal protections. Disability justice is more expansive than that. And it really thinks about, again, the relationship between systems, so intersectionalities at the core, and disability justice understands that all of these systems, including capitalism and imperialism, rely on the idea of disability and on ableism to function by being able to say, well, these folks are lesser or inferior in some way. And so we're actually doing good and caring for them by taking over their land and slaving them. Um, so disability justice sees these long-term connections and argues that the disability justice movement and racial rights movements have to work together um, and have to integrate these issues into the work in order to succeed. And is this something that is new to disability studies scholarship? Is, 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 this, is this a unique affordance of Black disability studies and thinking in these intersectional ways? Or is, is, is this building on a foundation that has already been, been, been set? How is, how is Black disability studies kind of uh, charting new ground from, from, from previous scholarship? So... Black disability studies is relatively new in, I would say, in the last five, 10 years max, um, relatively new. There's not a lot of us who are doing this kind of work, but the work that we're doing is still building on earlier disability studies work. The field of disability studies started in about the early 90s, really, um, for what we would consider disability studies today. And it was predominantly white, but it also had a lot of white feminists doing the work. So early disability studies was still intersectional. It was still thinking about especially gender and disability and the relationship between these categories. So there are approaches in disability studies that we can borrow from for Black disability studies. And there is some existing work on race and disability that I'm building from in my book, but also other scholars are building on, but it is still relatively new. Um, I was pretty early in disability studies. I was able to do a minor in it as an undergrad. So I've been in the field for a long time. And, you know, I'm still often one of the only folks doing work on race. I'm often one of the only Black folks in the room. So even as there are other people, you know, I'm not the only one doing it, I'm not the first one doing it, it's still few and far between. So a lot of this book is me really asking more scholars to come into this work with me and be in conversation with me, because I can't research it all alone. I can't do it all alone. Yeah, as as you were describing that, I was I was thinking, you know, are there are there particular challenges that 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 you've come across? Because it seems doing research, doing new research on a on a on a relatively new field could be both potentially very exciting, but also very challenging because you are you are 
are charting new ground. Um, have there been particular difficulties that you've come across uh, in trying to build a field of research, it sounds like? I think the difficulty is having to look at sources in a totally different way. The organizations, for example, that I talk about in the book, the Black Panther Party, the National Black Women's Health Project, no one is writing about them from a disability studies perspective yet. So there's not another scholar that I'm arguing with <laughs> about these particular organizations. Um, so in some ways, you know, I am I'm making it up. I'm basing it on my ideas and my concepts um, and in conversation with scholars or, or with activists. So I think that's the other thing, even though Black Disability Studies is relatively new, there have been Black activists in doing disability political work for a very long time, right? And that's one of the reasons that I interviewed some folks for the book. So it it is difficult in that sense, in the scholarly sense of like, well, who are you citing for this? I'm like, well, not really any academic writing. You know, I might be citing work that's coming out of academic or out of activist communities, but there's not an existing theory. There's not an existing book that I'm really pulling from. But it also allows me a lot of freedom and creativity. So that can be really exciting. It feels really good to do that kind of work. Um, but it also at times is hard to stop because it's new, because there's not much said. Um, I, I had to at some point just decide, okay, this is, this is gonna be what the book is and I can't do research for a million billion years um, to write this book. And I didn't want it to be you know, a gigantic book that no one could read or get through either. So um, there's a limit to it because there is so much more I could have talked about and could have said that isn't in the book. And I, so I think that's the challenge is that I can start a conversation, but I can't cover everything um, because there are there's not as much that I'm building on or relating to. I was I was I was initially going to save this for a little bit later in the conversation, but I, th I think it, I think it applies now. There, there, there are several moments throughout the work where you acknowledge you call it the, the undisciplined nature of 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 your book. And in that context, you're talking that it's not following a lot of academic norms. Uh, and for our, for our listening audience, the book is divided up into five chapters and then there is a conclusion, but it's actually not a conclusion uh, as, as, as you suggest. And then there are two um, uh, interchapters uh, which you use for moments to, to discuss praxis and how to, how to immediately uh, how how activists how cultural makers how scholars how we can immediately start changing the ways that we think and talk about and engage with with disability politics interestingly in your final in in, in in your in your not conclusion you write quote that this book is and is not for the academy as somebody who was once deeply ensconced in the academy i was very intrigued by that so I'm curious, as a professor and a scholar, how do you write a book that is both for and not for academics? Because I feel like you are gesturing more towards activists and, as you call them, cultural workers, much more than you were talking to fellow academics. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I think an important context is I was revising and finishing this book in 2020, right? Mm -hmm. So there was just this, you know, a moment where I was like, I don't know that the Academy matters as much to me right now. I think that what matters to me is how we're changing the world and how we're influencing the world and how organizers are doing things. So that was a strong influence in feeling like I wanted to speak 
outside of academic spaces alone. Um, so when I say, you know, is and is not for, what I mean is it's not just for academics. I don't want it to just be for academics. I don't want to only speak to academics. I don't want it to just be in university libraries. I don't want it just to be in graduate school classrooms. I want it to be much more broadly read, much uh, more accessible. So that is, yeah, that's what I mean about it. It's also, you know, I have to say it's a tenured book, right? It's, I already have tenure. I have freedom to do a little bit something different. And as a person who never thought I was gonna be an academic, like even when I was in grad school, I wasn't really sure if this was what I wanted to do, um, if it was gonna be the right place for me as a fat, black, queer, disabled woman. Um, it is really important to me that I do work that feels meaningful for me. Um, and so for me, what is meaningful is making sure that my work is able to be read by folks who might not have um, higher education, a college degree, definitely don't need you know, a PhD to read my work. That is really important to me because um, yeah, I'm in conversation with activists. I'm writing about activists. If I wrote a book that activists couldn't read, couldn't access, that would feel very unethical to me. So a lot of it is about making sure that I'm putting out something that I feel proud of and excited about um, more so than do I need to speak to other academics? And you know, your first book as an academic, you have to really speak <laughs> to other academics and prove that you can do that. Um, but I've already done that. I've already proved that I can do other things now. I think because of that, it was such a pleasure to read too, because uh, the, the the pacing was very nice to, to our listeners. It's a relatively short read. It, it clocks in at just under 160 pages. And um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about your decision to include these praxis interchapters as ways of modeling for folks how to how to think about, uh, I know in one you think about kind of outdated language and ways that we think about uh, disability and, and, and disabled folks. So was it the historical moment of 2020, the kind of George Floyd uprisings, the COVID pandemic, was that what in, pushed you towards including these more kind of uh, practical takeaways with, with concrete lessons? Or, or, or was this something that you'd kind of already been moving towards in your in your research prior to that prior to, to, to 2020? So prior to 2020, I did want it to be a book that activists would read and be excited about reading because I had done the research, I'd interviewed folks, but 2020 really was where I figured out how to do that in a different way. Um, I was really lucky to have one of the anonymous readers from Duke University Press, so I still don't know who that person is, thank you to whoever this person was, um, who you know gave feedback on the book and said, you say this isn't a history, but you present this very chronological. So originally it was, you know, the two historical chapters on Panthers, two on the National Black Women's Health Project, one big chapter on all the contemporary stuff together. And the reader was like, what if you wove in some of the contemporary stuff earlier to really speak to that element? And so I had already been thinking about how to make things like praxis and applicable, but that suggestion had gotten me thinking and I was experimenting with what that might look like. And it was then um, in the midst of the uprisings in 2020 and doing that in the wake of the COVID um, pandemic that made me see things that folks were doing in that moment that I was like, ooh, 
that relates to the book and that's a thing. And so it really was just in real time seeing some of the things that folks were doing, either in the negative, right? I do, I write about um, the shooting of Jacob Blake and I talk about the way that folks were responding to that, particularly here, Wisconsin, right? Um, and then kind of other things that folks were doing in the positive in the way that we were organizing different kinds of protests. So whether that was, we were all masked outside or we were doing car caravans, but what were the different ways that we were organizing and trying to protect one another? So because I was kind of living that in real time, it really pushed me to make that change. And I did, I finished the, the final version um, of the book in June of 2020. So right in the middle of it, I was finishing the book and making these big kind of shifts into that praxis format um, because it felt like we were living in this brief flash of a moment that I wanted to capture and to take out the lessons to make sure, you know, kind of putting it in this time capsule of a book into the future to be like, please take these lessons and let's keep going with it, even though we might not be living in the same moment of the pandemic. Um, I think these lessons and these tactics that we adapted are still really useful. Did you, did you at all in that moment, did you feel more connected to the histories that you were writing about, whether it was like the Black Panther Party um, or um, your other chapter on the, uh, the national, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the, on the name. You're that... fine. National Black Women's Health Project. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Um, was, 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 was that a moment where, where as an activist on the ground yourself working for Freedom Inc. and, and you do write about this in the, in the uh, closing pages of the book, was that a moment of kind of solidarity uh, across time? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious to know, like, as, as you're living this in your daily life and then as kind of a scholar and academic trying to, you know, have somewhat of scholarly objective distance from it, did you feel, did you feel the two kind of blending together in your own, in your own experience? Absolutely. I started working on this book in 2017. So at that point, I had been three years deep into studying Black activist work around disability. So it was in my head um, a lot. And it really did feel like a moment again of like, this is it. This is where I, I jump in and I use this knowledge, not just in the classroom and not just on the page, but I use it in my community and in, in real life right now, right now is the moment. Um, so I, you know, I talk about in the book, one of the things I did as a disabled person who, you know, could not run from the police when, you know, we had tanks rolling down downtown. Uh, that was not something that my body was going to be able to do, but I was able to show up to other sorts of events and make sure that people had food and water. And I used um, funding and support that I got from followers on social media to make sure that we were getting folks food and water and medical um, medic supplies as needed. And so, yeah, I was definitely influenced by that work and thinking about the Panthers in particular responding to the particular historical moment it just felt like i had to do it it really felt like i had to do it um and of course it you know helped that it was summer and we were all still mostly in our houses and i was like okay i have literally nothing else to do but get in the streets and do this and so i'm gonna do it um and for me it was a really important moment to really learn about the dedication and the work i think particularly watching folks 
at Freedom Inc., you know, they knew how to do this kind of stuff. And so I learned so much watching them on the ground, even though I had already been a board member, I had never been quite as involved on the ground. So um, yeah, I learned a lot and then it felt important to document that and put that into the book so that other folks might learn um, from how black disabled folks were a big part of the uprisings here in Madison. You are listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I am your host, Andrew Thomas. And today we are talking uh, to Professor Sammy Schock about her book, Black Disability Politics, published in 2022 by Duke University Press. I'd like to take a little bit of time and and kind of dive into the work that you were doing on the Black Panther Party, um, because you 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 give a lens into the Black Panther Party that we normally don't see when we read scholarship about the party doing activism in the 60s and the 70s. Um, chapters one and two of Black Disability Politics draw on your reading of Black Panther, the Black Panther Party's intercommunal newspaper. Uh, published from 1967 to 1980. And in your first chapter, you talk about what has become known as the 504 sit-in. Sit in. So what was the 504 sit-in for our listeners who don't know, and why does it figure so prominently in your opening analysis uh, for the rest of the work? So the 504 sit-in is infamous in kind of disability history and disability organizing because it was this wildly successful sit-in at the San Francisco office, regional office um, of Hugh, which is the Health Education and Welfare Department. And Section 504 is actually Section 504 of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act, but the protests happened in 1977. So, uh, you know, my folks that know your um, presidential history will know there's a lot of turnover happening at that time. Um, so essentially the 1973 Rehabilitation Act passed and Section 504 was supposed to state that um, there would be no discrimination against people on the basis of disability for any place that received federal funds. That might be public schools, public universities, public hospitals. But by 1977, because of all the changes in the federal government, um, there had not been any regulations officially put into place, which meant there was no definition for what counted as exclusion and discrimination, and there was no definition of who counted as disabled. Um, one of the fights, for example, was do folks with addiction count as disabled or not? So there were fights over that. So we get to 1977 and it still hasn't been passed. Um, and a group of disability leaders across the country organized protests at various large cities at their regional Hue office um, to protest and demand that these regulations finally get passed. Most of these sit-ins across the country lasted for a few hours. One in DC lasted a little over a day, but the one in San Francisco lasted for 25 days. So at the time it was the longest nonviolent occupation of a federal building in US history. So this is huge, it's all disabled activists taking over this federal building, um, which you know even today would be incredible if someone <laughs> took over a federal building nonviolently for 25 days. And so it lasted as long as it did, largely because of the very active disability rights activism that was happening in the Bay Area. And the Panthers are also in the Bay Area. So they happen to be in Oakland. They happen to be connected to some of these organizations, primarily because of one of their members, Brad Lomax, who was a Black disabled man. He had multiple sclerosis and used a wheelchair. 
So he was connected with folks doing the, the Center for Independent Living in the Bay Area and the Berkeley, Oakland area, and then got connected with the people that were leading this protest. So the Panthers got involved, but essentially these folks took over, demanded the change, and eventually, yeah, these regulations were passed. After 25 days, um, the regulations were passed and folks left the building. But the Panthers were involved um, in order to support the protest. So they, they did have that member, Brad Wilmax, um, and Chuck Jackson, who was there as a support inside. But most of the Panthers were not actually involved in the planning, the execution, what they did was provide food on a regular basis, which is very important if you're locked in a building for 25 days, um, as well as provide a provided a mobile shower, other kinds of resources. And then they did a lot of stories about the protest in their newspaper, which is the bulk of what I focus on is the way they talk about it and present it to their readers who were not predominantly necessarily disabled folks, but Black people. Um, so for me, this is just a, an important example of Black disability politics looking different ways. So this might be a Black activist organization strongly supporting disability rights and then writing about it to other Black people and positioning it in a way of saying, these, this is another oppressed group in society that we have to support and ally with because none of us are free until all of us are free. One of the one of the key insights that I that I that I glean from that chapter, and then and then that gets expanded upon as the as as the book continues, is that something unique about Black disability politics is that it is not necessarily based in disability identity. That a lot of the the critiques of systems and structures that Black disability politics produces. Um, it, the the disability identity is implied, but not um, a um, the the only component of the of the critique. And part of that stems from what what you uh, what you identified at one point as a a black disability consciousness gap. And I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit more about about histories of disability, specifically within the black community, and how disability uh, identifying with disability has it has a contentious history w w within black communities and that this moment with the black Panthers was a, a watershed moments of sorts because it was showing ways in which blackness and black identity and black politics could be married to disability in in productive ways. So could you, could you just talk more about, about the legacy of identifying as a disabled black person leading up to this moment and going forward? Yeah, there's there's a gap in, you know, how many black folks identify as disabled for a lot of reasons. And I want to make clear when I'm saying identify as disabled, I mean using that word to describe oneself, right? So there may be people who say, I have a condition or I have diabetes, but they don't identify as disabled. That's not the word that they use. So that's what I mean by disability identity, um, because disability identity has been very important for the disability rights movement. It's been very important as a organizing and community creating tool, but it is something that historically, a lot of Black folks have distanced themselves from, including myself. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that, historically and contemporarily. So I'll just mention a few of them. So 
One is a lot of folks don't identify as disabled because they don't receive state benefits, right? So they don't receive social security disability benefits, which are incredibly hard to get. Um, there's a lot of paperwork, it takes a lot of time. Many people who get it um, hire a lawyer to help them through that process, right? So it's a lot of time, um, energy, potentially money. And so there are fewer black folks that are on and receiving state benefits. So for many people, they think if I don't receive those state benefits, then I am not disabled, right? Only people who get that. Similarly, if someone does not receive accommodations at school because maybe they don't have a diagnosis, they've been discouraged from getting a diagnosis, then again, they think, well, I don't get those things that disabled people get, so therefore I'm not. So that's one reason. But also, historically, the concept of disability has been used against Black people to justify other forms of racial discrimination or violence. So we could go as far back as thinking about medical racism um, and scientific racism, I mean, um, where terms like drapedomania was a term that referred to Black people, um, enslaved Black folks who ran away kept running away. And the idea was, well, they must have a mental disorder that makes them run away because we believe that Black people are supposed to be enslaved, that that is their natural state. So we see this history of disability concepts being used against Black people to say, you are inferior, you are indifferent in this other way, and therefore we can treat you differently. If we move more contemporarily, there's also just stigma attached to disability for anyone. And so for a lot of Black people, they've also been encouraged by their family members, their community, that if you can avoid being seen as disabled, being diagnosed with a disability, particularly when we're thinking about mental and psychiatric disabilities, that one should, right? That's the idea is that you should, because if you can take away one layer of oppression that people are reading you and if you can reduce that stigma, you should do that. Now, of course, those of us who are in black disability community believe that the stigma actually doesn't go away. <laughs> People are still clocking you in other ways, even if you don't have that diagnosis, but that's the thought process, right? If you can avoid being seen as disabled, if you can make yourself as normative and able-bodied and able-minded as possible, it's going to make being black easier. So there's these different reasons why folks don't identify. I guess I'll also add in that there are a lot of um, disabilities, physical and mental, where Black folks are misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed because the diagnosis is based on um, very white masculine norms. So there's all these reasons why Black folks either haven't received a disability diagnosis, haven't been in disability community, or reject that, hide from that label because of the stigma. So yeah, a lot of folks don't identify as disabled, which means that a lot of the Black disability politics, the work that I study, isn't necessarily by done, done by people who say, I'm Black disabled and proud. Um, and I think that that's okay. We kind of deal with that um, a little bit in the book, engaging with the activists, the contemporary activists, that we really talk about identity being a community building tool. It's a way of finding people, of connecting with folks, but it is not the goal in and of itself, right? The goal is, you know, the end of ableism, right? Dismantling the system. The end goal is not now a bunch of people have identified as disabled, but then what do we do with that community and what's the value of it? So it is a tool for finding community, finding people who understand this to be a political issue. One of, one of, the, one of the recurring um, tactics I, I, I guess I'll call it that, that, that you identify in the work to, to dismantle 
ableism and particularly think about these different communities that 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 you're writing about is that um, you frequently you are reminding your readers that that history and context matter when we talk about about black disability um, and thinking about the context in which these different communities are living their day-to-day -day lives. And I wonder if you could just talk about that a, a little bit more. And I, I, I know there, there were so many examples that you were giving uh, in, in the book, but was there a standout example that you covered in your research that illustrated this point really well, that we really do need to attend to the historical and context-based conditions of disability rather than, um, I, I guess, taking kind of like a more individualistic or or medicalized approach to 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 disability. So yeah, can you just expand on uh, history and context in the work that you're doing? Yeah. That that historicizing and contextualizing is a central part of kind of the main one of the four main qualities I identify. That and what that means is that we have to read something in the lo longer racial context um, to explain why Black folks might be responding or engaging in the way that they are. Um, so the National Black Women's Health Project they did a lot of this in writing about you know the history of enslavement and the way that that impacted people and our perception of needing to hide any potential um, injury or disability under the, the fear that you might be considered to be unable to work and might be sold off, right? So they kind of bring that as a way that folks have not addressed or attended to health issues or been clear about it, have, hide, have tried to hide it historically. Um, we can also think about more contemporarily, the disability rights movement often talks about disability pride. We have disability pride Madison. It's a, it's a theme of a lot of disability um, community and organizing work. But there are a lot of Black people who have been disabled by violence, right? By gun violence, by police violence, by medical violence. And so it is very hard to have pride about something that is incredibly traumatic um, that comes from circumstances that are racist and classist and sexist. And so that push for disability pride has often pushed people out of community or even out of identifying as disabled um, because of this longer history of, you know, the way that this particular disability has shown up in community. Um, I also just think about the prevalence of diabetes in Black communities that because it's be common that for many folks, again, they didn't think of it as a disability because so many people around them have it, right? If your whole family has history of diabetes, you might not think of that as my entire family is disabled um, and it becomes normalized, right? So anytime we're thinking about disability in that context or within the context of a Black community, um, I really encourage folks to think about it in that longer historical context to say, well, why are folks doing it this way? Why are they responding to it this way? If it doesn't look like what we think it should look like as folks outside of that community, um, particularly for white disabled organizers. And that is something that I think all of um, the activists and organizers and organizations that I study in the book try to do. They try to give that larger context to explain how did we get here essentially. The, the the additional element that that you that you discuss as well, and, and you talked about this quite an extent with the uh, National Black Women's Health Project, um, but their work was you said it was holistic, cultural, and and political, 
and the the holistic aspect is 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 is, is what I'm interested in here. How did how did this group, the National Black Women's Health Project, how did the the politics that they were enacting, what did it mean for it to be holistic, and 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 what did that look like? Yeah, their approach to health was holistic, meaning that not only did they address mental and emotional and spiritual well-being, um, which I think is more common now that we talk about holistic health or holistic wellness, but the National Black Women's Health Project also insisted on talking about spiritual well-being. Um, so this is one example of their holistic approach. I use holistic um, to describe things kind of content-wise, like a, a holistic broad topic, but also the tactics, meaning that sometimes it's at this very micro level individual work, sometimes it's broader, so it's holistic and broad in kind of multiple ways there. Um, but in particular for the approach to health with the National Black Women's Health Project, that inclusion of spirituality was really interesting and really important. And you know, over the course of this book tour, I've just been kind of encouraging other people, like if anybody else really has this as their background, like you're someone who does spirituality and religious studies, um, and you want to start thinking more about blackness and disability, please do, because it's just not my background. But it came up so much in the archive that it felt really important to write about, because we don't often talk about spirituality um, in the context of disability studies or public health, um, because we're pretty dismissive <laughs> of the role of spirituality um, on folks. And I think that that it's a problem when we're talking about black disability politics. Most of the work that exists in disability studies either talks about the ableism of Christian churches, of, you know, of the notion that God either cursed someone or blessed someone with a disability, um, and like spiritual faith healings, right, laying up hands. So there's lots of critiques of religion and spirituality, but there's nothing that really explores what happens um, for folks who are disabled and have a really rich spiritual life, who have deep connections to their religious communities. And this comes up in the work of the National Black Women's Health Project. They're constantly talking about spiritual health and spiritual wellness as being a part of holistic health, holistic wellness. And I think that was really important to get the buy-in for a lot of Black women that they were trying to work with. Um, they worked with churches um, because there were many people that found that their church community was the community of care that they existed in and that their religious leaders were the folks that prayed with them and came to the hospital and they attribute their spirituality and their spiritual communities with their ability to live well to live with their disability to overcome certain kinds of illnesses um bouts of illness and so it's important and i don't think we have any good language to really talk about it yet um, because I think especially with academics where we are not inclined to think about the um, things that we cannot document with science <laughs> you know um, but it is real for people and you know on the organizing end I just think that if we are dismissive of people who are religious or spiritual in any way in our organizing communities, we're going to leave a lot of folks out. We're going to push a lot of folks out if we say, oh, don't talk about that here, or that has nothing to do with your disability um, or with your wellness. So that is just an approach that they took that was holistic to really say, 
It's not just your mind. It's not just your body. It's also your spirit. Um, and they meant that very broadly. It wasn't just, um, you know, Christian religious communities. They talked about spirituality in a lot of really broad ways that wasn't always tied to religion, but very much attended to that ineffable aspect of one's life. These 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 spiritual or, or like faith practices that you're that you're that you're talking about. Did you have have you seen these uh, reiterated in like contemporary spaces, like the like the eleven different activists that that you and and cultural workers that you were you were interviewing? Was this something that you were seeing also taken up in in, in their communities, or or was this something that at the moment you've seen more specifically with the National Black Women's Health Project? Um, it came up in a couple of interviews, mostly again to kind of push back on um, faith communities that can be very ableist. So T. Banks, who's a local activist and organizer, um, says something to the effect of, you know, I don't have the exact quote memories from the book, but says, you know, um, it's Jesus and medication, right? That if you have a right. psych disability, it doesn't mean you have to pray more, it doesn't mean you don't believe enough, but it can be both. That both of these things can be helpful in managing and dealing with having a particular kind of psych disability. And so I do see folks pushing back on that because again, for many black people, the church community is a huge part of their life. And so to say that we can't talk about disability in that space or to be told that disability in that space is only if you're seeking healing, um, if you're seeking cure in some way, it's going to create a divide. So again, it's something that was so clearly important to the work of the National Black Women's Health Project and it did come up in these contemporary interviews. I see some disabled people engaging more and more with alternative forms of spirituality, not necessarily Christian churches, but other forms of spiritual and ancestral practices um, that they find very useful and grounding. And I think we don't yet have a way to talk about that in our activist circles um, and in our academic academic work, you know? Um, so it's something that I really want to encourage more folks to be thinking about and theorizing about. I feel like Jesus and medication is a great title to, uh, <laughs> to, to an article. You know, there, there needs to be something after the call-in, but yeah, Jesus and medication. Yeah. Um, uh, you're listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I am your host, Andrew Thomas, and today we're speaking with uh, Sammy Schock about her book, Black Disability Politics, published in 2022 by Duke University Press, which I should add as well that this is um, this book is is free online too. You, you mentioned earlier talking about accessibility. And so um, you can access this uh, through, uh, you can access the entire work on the Duke University website. Um, so very, very generous to uh, make this accessible to, uh, to, to everyone. Um, I, I, I briefly wanted to jump back to to your discussion of the Black Panthers only because this this Madison Bookbeat, it's it's a loosely Wisconsin themed literary talk show. And so I'm, I just have to ask and the answer could be very short and succinct. But did you learn anything interesting or surprising about the Black Panther Party specifically in Milwaukee during your research? Was there anything that that surprised you about what? Um, what Midwest Panthers were, 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 were up to at the time? Well, I didn't find anything specific to the disability political work, but mm. Milwaukee was one of 
um, the chapters to last the longest. So um, in some of the work, I talk about the fact that earlier in the Panthers, um, the history of the organization in the late 60s, they were distributing this um, newspaper at like 500,000, you know, all over the world. And by the time we get to the late 70s, it's down to like 5,000, 6,000 copies. But Milwaukee was one of those places where it was still being sent and distributed, um, which means that there are people here in Wisconsin who were receiving this kind of information. Um, so they lasted a bit longer, um, but that's about it in terms of like the specifics of this. There were some other chapters, like there was a chapter in Winston-Salem um, that had an ambulance service that they self-created, a community ambulance service. So there was a little bit um, about those kind of individual chapters, but by the time we get to the late 70s when I'm talking about the Panthers' work, they really were mostly based in the Bay Area um, and in Oakland in terms of their work, largely because of the, you know, counterintelligence program, Pro, that directly targeted um, the organization to dismantle and disrupt it. Um, so that happened in the early 70s. And so by late 70s, they had um, a much smaller scale of work, um, but I think nonetheless very important despite the smaller scale. So much of so much of black disability politics, it's 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 thinking about it's thinking about activists on the ground. It's it's thinking about the 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 type of sociopolitical and cultural work that activists have done um, since since the since the sixties and, and and seventies into the present moment. And one of one of the terms that comes up towards the towards the end of black disability politics is uh, the idea of pleasure and 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 pleasure activism. And this is something that 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 that, that you identify as uh, as as a pleasure activist. Um, I know this is drawing uh, from 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 some other scholars' work, but this is something that you were hoping to build on into your next uh, book project. So, could you talk to us a little bit more about what what is pleasure activism, um, and and how does it relate specifically to to Black disability politics? Yeah, pleasure activism is a concept um, popularized by Adrienne Marie Brown in her book, Pleasure Activism, um, in which I have a chapter. And there's another um, disabled activist, Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha, who also has a chapter in that book. Um, and pleasure activism is the idea at, at the core that pleasure is political, who receives pleasure, whose pleasure is politicized, shamed, um, criminalized, banned, uh, made illegal, we're seeing right now, right? So whose pleasure is privilege and not privilege in our culture is an indication of measures of freedom, measures of oppression. So we take that as the base. Pleasure is political. Pleasure is something that we have to bring into our politics. And then this looks a couple of ways in practice. It means how do we bring pleasure into our organizing work, which might be as simple as playing music at a protest and dancing and having food, but how do we bring joy into those spaces? How do we bring pleasure into those spaces? Um, but then also how do we work on our own pleasure practices as individuals, um, especially if you're a person with a lot of privilege, how do you work to ensure the continued pleasure of other folks. Um, so for me, that has been a lot about the clothing that I wear, really wearing things that bring me joy, encouraging folks to do the same. Um, but it also means dealing with the, like, the police in my own head for other people's pleasure, to really get over the fact that not everything is going to bring the same people pleasure, right? So something that you're like, I have no idea why that person likes that, 
it's fine, you know, but we put these labels on things like a guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasures are often things that we associate with women, with um, working class folks, right? No one ever says opera is my guilty pleasure. Like that's not how people talk about it. So we can see that there are all these race, class, gender, and then disability specific um, associations with what kind of pleasures are appropriate, not appropriate, valued, not valued. And um, so that is an important part of my kind of life work at this point. And I included in Black Disability Politics because Adrienne Marie Brown is a Black disabled woman um, and because I think that it's an important part of how we sustain the work. I think that I'm seeing a lot of folks burn out. I think in 2020 in particular, I saw a lot of folks throw themselves into the work until they were unwell. And um, I wanted us to think more about making political work sustainable, organizing work sustainable through the incorporation of pleasure and really believing that that, that our pleasure has value. Um, and I'll say that, you know, the definition of pleasure is pretty broad, but it is not just sexual pleasure, right? It is about that deep satisfaction is what Adrienne Marie Brown says. Like, what's the thing that brings us deep satisfaction? Um, so that can even be things that are not joyful, right? I experience deep satisfaction having like a real good cry when I'm <laughs> upset, like just really letting it out. Like all of these things can be points of pleasure, um, but how do we incorporate that without shaming ourselves, shaming other people, um, bringing more, more of it into our world, yeah. Yeah, it's such a um, it, it's such a uh, given given the histories that you are that you are describing in the work quite quite difficult histories of 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 oppressive systems. Um, it, it it does seem to be a it, it does seem to be like a a hopeful turn um, in the in the in in the overall piece. Um, I'm I'm seeing that uh, we we are we are quickly running short short on time here. Um, just kind of a last question about craft. I, I, I usually like to ask all, all of my guests because they're all writers and I hope that we have a lot of uh, writer listeners as well. But um, just what have you, what, what's one takeaway that you've learned about the writing process over the years as a scholar, as a public intellectual, as a creative writer? Just something that you would want to pass on, on, on to fellow writing listeners. Reading your work out loud. I read my work out loud to catch the places where it just doesn't have a natural cadence, where the sentence is too long. Um, that's really important to me, especially in terms of making the writing accessible and legible, because I think a lot of academics have a tendency to write very long, very complicated sentences. So I like to read something that I've written out loud just to check for the flow of it all. Well, with that, we will wrap it up today. We have been in conversation with Sammy Shock about her black uh, about her book Black Disability Politics, published in 2022 by Duke University Press. Sammy, it's been a pleasure having you on Madison Bookbeat. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, thank you. You've been listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I am your host Andrew Thomas. Thanks to my sound engineer and news director doing it all today, Charlie Pittman. Uh, coming up next is three hours of jazz with Alex Wilding White. Keep it here on listener-sponsored Community Radio, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison, and take care. <laughs>